One last time, let's turn to the book of Lamentations. We'll finish up our series today. I'm going to invite you to turn to chapter 5, Lamentations 5. Next Sunday, we're going to start an Advent series. We're going to look at Matthew, Matthew 1 and 2, and the birth account of Jesus for the month of December. Something I think that's kind of interesting, just to give you an idea for what's coming up, is that it was not common at all for women to be included in ancient genealogies, um, Jewish genealogies, uh, Roman genealogies, uh, typically from the first century, uh, did not include women. Uh, Luke, Luke's account does not include any women. Matthew has five women, uh, Mary, of course, uh, but four other women. And um, so we're going to look at the significance of that over the next several weeks. And why did Matthew include women like Tamar and Rahab and um, Ruth and Bathsheba and, of course, Mary? We're going to find out why, what was significant about that and learn a little bit about our own lives in the meantime and what Jesus has done for them and what he does for us. I hope that you'll Join us next week as we go to the book of Matthew for a few weeks. But today, we're in Lamentations 5, this poetic book of the Bible, the poetic expression of grief at the loss of the city of Jerusalem, that after God's long patience and waiting for the people to turn to Him and repent, um, they had to to learn the hard way, um, that God's promises are true, and sometimes His promises uh, of discipline and punishment um, rather than um, us uh, experiencing the kind of, of uh, way that we should turn to God. Um, they learned it the hard way, if you will. And Lamentations 5 is going through uh, the grief and the loss and the, the suffering that was endured uh, by God's people. And um, so we're going to look at this chapter, um, chapter 5 today. Growing up, my parents used to listen to a lot of Christian music when we were in the car especially. Uh, kids, believe it or not, we didn't have YouTube um, or a lot of those things. But we did have these things called CDs. Now, uh, your grandparents didn't have those. They may have had tapes or records or, or what have you. But uh, we used CDs when I was growing up. And uh, so my parents would play um, a lot of Christian music. A lot of it was Southern Gospel or country gospel, some of it. And I was thinking about one of those songs. Now, I've tried to forget a lot of those songs. No, I'm kidding. There's some of them that are good, and some of them uh, my parents are laughing probably as they watch this later. Um, but um, some, of it, some of it's kind of funny to look back on and think, I don't think that's really in the Bible. But um, if you ever listen to country gospel, you know that um, sometimes, this is a little tip for you, but sometimes songwriters are not great theologians. And what's really great is if you can get a great songwriter and a theologian and like where they work together, you can get a great song. Uh, but if, if you just have a great singer and musician that's not great with the Bible, sometimes you can have songs that are a little off. And uh, so anyway, sometimes we laugh at some of those old songs that we would listen to. But I was reading the book of Lamentations this week and, and, and one of those songs popped into my mind. It was kind of a strange song. It was about a preacher who set up a tent in the country uh, to host an outdoor church service for the community. They used to call those tent revivals 
in Oklahoma, North Carolina, where I've lived. And he was hosting this tent revival, this tent meeting. And the punchline of the song is that the preacher set up this preaching tent, this revival tent, if you will, in a strategic location. It was at the corner of Heartbreak Ridge and New Hope Road. That was the punchline of the chorus. That people whose lives have been ruined, they come to Heartbreak Ridge and they find themselves at an intersection of Heartbreak Ridge and New Hope Road. I was thinking this week, I guess Heartbreak Ridge is better than Heartbreak Hotel from Moses. So we'll have to do with what we can with that. But, but I, I started laughing because the song is kind of a, uh, an interesting song. It's, a, it's about a metaphorical place, right? Heartbreak Ridge and New Hope Road. But the song does point to something that I think is, is really powerful. Uh, how that oftentimes heartbreak does intersect with hope. That ruined lives become redeemed lives at this metaphorical corner of Heartbreak Ridge and New Hope Road. In other words, that broken hearts often find themselves at a place that's a crossroads. And that hurt turns to hope. Now, I, I thought about that song this week, not because it's a great song, because it's not. I'm almost embarrassed to mention it today. It's not the world's greatest song in the world. Some of you are going to look it up and say, I can't believe you listened to that song. So I didn't mention that song because it's the world's greatest song. But because our lives often come to the intersection of hurt and hope. And I think that's how the book of Lamentations concludes. It doesn't conclude how we think it might, but it does conclude with Jeremiah like at a crossroads. He's at a place of deep hurt, enormous hurt. But he also can't shake this real sense now, not a conjured-up hope, not a, an emotional hope, not a hope that is based upon false premises, but a hope that just won't die, even though it seems like it should. At this intersection of hurt and hope is what this last chapter is about. Let me look at it with you. Look at verse 1. We'll read the whole thing. It's actually the shortest of all chapters as far as words go. They're 22 verses, but they're the shortest lines. You could just glance at chapter 4 and see that it is certainly shorter. Some say he did that because he's kind of like he's tailing off. Um, it's kind of like the, the end of a song where the music starts to fade out. And so you've come to that crescendo, right, of chapter 3, which is 66 verses right? Because of the Lord's mercies were not consumed. Great is His faithfulness. I remember this. This is why I have hope. But yet, He's still in the midst of, of hurt and heartbreak. So look at chapter 5. He begins with these words, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. Our inheritance is turned to strangers. Our houses." Uh, to aliens or foreigners, not, not, uh, 
E.T. wasn't taking over their house there. Um, as the King James says, aliens, it's an old word for strangers or foreigners. Verse 3, we are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. We've drunken our water for money. Our wood is sold unto us. Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers have sinned and are not. That is, they've passed away. And we have borne their iniquities. They face the consequences of their father's sins. Verse 8, servants or slaves have ruled over us. There is none that doth deliver us out of their hand. We get our bread with the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Our skin is black like an oven because of the terrible famine. They ravished or raped the women in Zion and the maids in the cities of Judah. Princes are hanged by their hand and the faces of elders were not honored. They took the young men to grind and the children fell under the wood. The elders have ceased from the gate, the young men from their music. The joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Because the mountain of Zion which is desolate. The foxes walk upon it. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. Wherefore dost thou forget us forever and forsake us so long time? Turn thou, unto, turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. But thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth and angry against us. Well, this passage is actually a prayer. Uh, he concludes the book of Lamentations with a, a prayer of lament. And this is what I want to preach to you about today, that a prayer of lament is actually the intersection, usually, of enormous hurt and enduring hope. Now, usually the only people who cry out to God and lament are those who have experienced enormous hurt, but still have enough hope that they cry out to God still. Does that make sense to you? That people who do not have hope don't lament. Lament is a pathway to hope. It's an expression of enormous hurt, but it wouldn't be expressed if there wasn't any sense of hope. So lament is that intersection. Lament is the intersection of enormous hurt and hope. So in other words, if you find yourself in a season of life or in what seems like all of life, being on the path of enormous hurt. Lament is the intersection that leads you to enduring hope. Now, what do we learn about uh, the, this prayer of lament here that serves as 
the intersection of enormous hurt and enduring hope. I want to look at two lessons today that we think, I think that we see from Jeremiah. And again, Jeremiah is kind of pointing the way for us about what do we do with our enormous hurt. And I want to look at two things. Number one, through your enormous hurt, cry out to the Lord to remember your reproach. That's what he does in verse 1. He's praying to God. This is a poetic prayer. And he's asking God to remember what has happened to them. He uses really three words. Remember, consider, and behold, or look. Now he said look and behold a lot to God. But, but this whole chapter is a prayer. Not just part of it. All of it's a prayer. And his prayer is that through his enormous hurt, he's saying, God, remember what we are going through here. Pleading to God. Now, as you know, uh, Jeremiah was not a foolish man. Uh, I'm safe to say he probably knew more about God than we do. So he's not thinking that God has somehow forgotten. That there's something that just has slipped God's mind. So when he, does, when he says remember, he's not saying, God, remember something you have forgotten. But he's asking God to act on their behalf. To look at us, consider us, and remember your mercy towards us. Now, this will help you too, as you, especially if you study the Old Testament, that when you come across this word remember, it's usually a covenant word. When it says that God remembered someone, it doesn't mean like, oh, yeah, God, forgot about him. It says that about, it says that about Noah. Noah's in the ark. He's there for day after day floating on that unsinkable ship because God has made it unsinkable. And it says that God remembers Noah. You might remember that uh, when um, God was destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and was considering destroying everyone and everything there. The Bible says that God remembered Abraham and he sent Lot out safely out of the city. I mean, there's so many times that God does this in the Old Testament where he'll say, I remember my servant Noah. I remember my servant Abraham. I remember my servant David. And now Jeremiah is saying, God, you have always remembered us. You have always chosen not to abandon us. Don't abandon us now. Now, because it's included in the Bible, it must be important. So what Jeremiah does is he reminds God what God already knows, but he points the way. And by the way, every time we pray, we're not informing God. We're not telling God something he doesn't know. We're not in somehow uh, giving him information about our circumstances, but yet we're still called to bring those things. Whatever it is that we're in pain about, whatever it is that our heart is broken about, whatever it is that we're hurting about or anxious about, God knows, God sees, but one of the ways that we deal with it in God's way is by naming it to Him, by describing it. Now, this is where it will help some of you, because some of us have grown up in such a prosperity gospel climate that anything like Lamentations 5 seems like weak faith. You can't talk about your problems because that's weak faith. It's weak faith to come to God and Talk about things 
that are hurtful or painful. And it's almost like the power of positive thinking, which, by the way, a lot of prosperity gospel is just spiritual twist on the power of, of positive thinking. And that's why there are some people that have a really hard time with, you know, they, they almost make some Christians feel bad for talking about their problems. Oh, oh, oh no, no, we, we always have to praise the Lord only. Give thanks only. Don't take, talk about anything negative because negative is, is weak faith. There's a hint of truth to some of that. I'm not saying that. Now, we've all met negative Nancy, right? She's, we don't have anyone in our church named Nancy, I don't think. So it's not a real person. But negative Nancy is, is the one that you don't ask how it's going because she's going to tell you, right, every time, all of it, forever. I mean, you know, you ever met that person that they brighten up the room the moment they leave, right? That, 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 that's negative Nancy, right, okay? Now, th there's a difference in that, right? But the opposite side of that is kind of the, the fake spirituality. Everything's always a smile, never problems. It's kind of a veneer of constant happiness, which is not legitimate either, right? So what Jeremiah does is point the way here. He's expressing to God all the suffering and the loss and the devastation and notice what he says. I'm just going to go through this. There's about 20 different things. So I'm just going to list them very quickly. He says, we've lost our inheritance to foreigners. Now, he wasn't saying that as a, a racial cut on them. He's saying that they have come over, our enemies have come over and taken our homes, he says in verse 2. Our land, our property has been taken. He talks about their families in verse 3. Children have become orphans and fatherless. Mothers are widows the loss of their families. They have to pay for basic necessities of life. Now, in our day, we can't really understand this unless we change it up a little bit because we say, well, I have to pay for water. He says in verse 4, we have to pay for our water and our wood. You may say, well, I go to Lowe's. They don't give me free wood, right? It'd be like us saying we have to pay for the air that we breathe because water and wood is something that previously they never had to pay for. It's just abundantly available to them. But now they're slaves. Now they have to pay for everything. Everything has a cost. Even the water we drink and the wood that's necessary for our kitchens and our homes. He says that we're slaves to our pursuers in verse 5. We labor and have no rest. Verse 5, the idea is that our, our feet are under their necks. In verse 6, he talks about how that they have submitted themselves to the Egyptians and, Syri and the Assyrians for food because of what a desperate condition they're in. They're trusting in these other nations to supply to them so they don't die of starvation. He goes on to say that they are reaping the consequences of generations of sin previously. Now, another thing that's important is that we can't confess other people's sins. And I don't know if you've noticed that about our current cultural world, but um, I've noticed that um, many, many people in our society like to confess the sins of our forefathers, and there are many to confess. And we love to confess other people's sins. We love to talk about how bad people were previously. And it's really easy to do that. It certainly is. It's a lot easier than, than looking at ourselves. 
But, but we can't confess other people's sins in the sense that, and God doesn't punish us for other people's sins. But that's different. Punishment and consequences are, are two different things. That we can experience the consequences of other people's sins. And that's what he's talking about in verse 7. Our fathers sinned and they are no longer here with us and we have borne their iniquities. He's not saying that we're being directly punished for their sins, but we are reaping the consequences. Again, I've mentioned this analogy before, but a child in the middle of a household that's going through a divorce has done nothing wrong. But yet they're experiencing the consequences of that. When dad divorces mom to punish mom, the consequences are rolling on the son or daughter. Same is true with mom divorces dad to punish him. Well, children are in the windfall of that as well, aren't they? He goes on to say that we're slaves to former slaves in verse 8. Servants have ruled over us. And I think the idea is... is is he saying, people that we used to have mastery over are now having mastery over us. Verse 9, he says, we get our bread at the risk of our own lives. It's dangerous to go out. Their skin, he says, is deteriorating due to famine and dehydration. Verse 11, he says that women are being raped by their captors. Their young men are being executed by hanging. Their elders, verse 12, are shown no respect. The young men who haven't been executed are forced into slavery and work at the grind mills. And children, verse 13, stagger under the weight of carrying wood and slave labor. Their elders no longer sit at the city gates, verse 14. What's he mean by that? Well... The city gate was the local place of government. It was city hall, if you will, in these ancient cities. Now, the gate is where city business went on, to where those with power and authority, decision makers, would, would meet. But he says our elders, they no longer sit there because they have no authority any longer. Verse 14 and 15, music, joy and dancing. Have all ceased and turned to mourning. Their hearts are sick, he says in verse 17. Their eyes are dim. In verse 16, he says, The crown has fallen from our heads. I think the idea of that is they're no longer the national power that they used to be. Under the reign of David and Solomon, there was no power greater than Israel that time it was still a united kingdom it wasn't the northern kingdom of israel and the southern kingdom of judah it was one kingdom david and his son solomon reigned and everyone would recognize a crown on their heads but no longer well what does he mean by our hearts are sick and our eyes are are dim he's signifying the emotional and psychological toll it's taken on them and then he says in verse 18, that the city is desolate and that foxes prowl for food in this once great city. It's a wasteland. Now, it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but I hope you'll follow with me on this. Now, I love 
Christmas. I say that every year. And I love all the festive stuff about it. Um, you know, I make a joke about this, but uh, as long as it doesn't start before Thanksgiving, right? I mean, Black Friday is when Christmas starts. Can I get an amen from anybody, right? And then once it starts, right, then I enjoy it, right? Uh, Carly's been, you know, can we play Christmas music yet? And I'm like, well, when Thanksgiving is over, right? Uh, can we decorate yet? Well, when Thanksgiving is over, just as God intended it, right, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 14. No, I'm just kidding. That's not in there. It's, there is no Daniel 14, if you're wondering. So, but I, I, I love the Christmas season. I, I love all the festiveness about it, right? And sometimes when we enter into the Christmas season, we, we start to get this warm, fuzzy feeling, don't we? We see the decorations, the trees, the lights. It's your hot cocoa or, or the drink that you get at Starbucks that has, you know, 12 ingredients in it. And it's like a long list of all the shots of mocha and everything else you get in there. And everybody's got their sweaters on. Some of those are hideous, but they got them on. They're playing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or snowing outside, right? Some of us are like, oh, it's snowing outside. And others are like, it's, it's snowing outside. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. We get that kind of warm feeling. And you know, I thought... Here we are, in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, this last Sunday of Thanksgiving. And a lot of people would think, wow, Pastor Daniel, you didn't really set this schedule up very well because Lamentations 5 is not exactly the kind of cheery holiday passage we want to be reading, right? It doesn't give you that warm, fuzzy feeling. It doesn't make you want to... Frolic in the snow, as we might say. But really, there's nothing better to help you understand what Christmas is about than a passage like Lamentations 5. And I don't mean that with any kind of exaggeration. Because the real meaning of Christmas was not people in Jerusalem waiting for the city shops to be filled with toys and for snow to wipe the windows and for carolers to be walking down the streets. That's not they were, what they were looking forward to with Christmas. The reason they wanted Christmas, Messiah to come, is because of the kind of sorrow and pain and agony that they had dealt with. Christmas for them wasn't a holiday to enjoy great food and music and family and gifts. The idea of, of Christmas or the coming of the Christ, of the Messiah, was one that's going to redeem us from the enormous hurt and wreckage of our lives. So more than 93.9, which I love, by the way, but more than 93.9 will prepare you for Christmas. Lamentations will prepare you for Christmas. It will help you to understand why Christmas is really such a big deal. Because of the enormous hurt that the people of God had endured. Now this passage, it applies so well to cities and locations and even nations. That's the immediate context. Everything in this is plural. Our, us, we. It's not just Jeremiah. It's, it's all the people and all of their suffering. And I think it can be difficult for us to fully identify because none of us, or at least most of us probably, have never really gone through the atrocities of war. Maybe some have. 
that I would dare say most of us haven't. We don't know what it's like for our homes to be stolen from us, for our children to be orphaned, our wives to become widows, for us to become slaves to other people. We don't know what it's like to go out dangerously, to wander out for food. We don't know what it's like when enemy armies come into our cities and rape our women, execute our young men. But do you know that's exactly what happens in almost every war that goes on in the world? That right now in cities, these things are happening. Not just 2,000 years ago. Today, women are being raped, houses are being taken, young men being executed. It's dangerous to leave your home. And it's a reminder that for Americans, Lamentations is so hard for us because we know very little of what most people in the world know so well of. In fact, Lamentations, I think, would be exceedingly relevant to a lot of people around the world. But I think this passage also applies to us as individuals. That even us who have not experienced these kinds of sufferings that are mentioned here, I wonder how many of us descriptions like this fit so well. The joy of our hearts have ceased. One author described this chapter as a veil of gloom hang over their heads. Maybe that's how you feel. Does your heart feel sick and your eyes dim with tears? Well, if so, Jeremiah points you to this intersection of enormous hurt and enduring hope. And he says the way you get to that intersection is to cry out, Remember, O Lord. Ask God to look and consider your circumstances, the shame you feel, the loss you've endured, the hurt in your heart. Whether or not this enormous hurt has been caused by your own sins, or by the sins of others. Learn from Jeremiah to call out and cry out to the Lord who cares, whose mercy is new every morning. That's the first point. Last of all, we've not only seen that through enormous hurt, cry to the Lord to remember your reproach. Lastly, Through enduring hope, call on the Lord to renew and restore your relationship. Everything changes in verse 19. It's a pivot. But thou, O Lord, remainest forever thy throne from generation to generation. Up to this point, Jeremiah's eyes have been on the devastation, on the disaster, on the destruction of his people and of this city. But in verse 19, he sets his eyes now on the Lord, the one who reigns forever. And I think this is really significant because it doesn't, I've wrestled with this this week, it doesn't really seem to fit 
the one who, but you, Lord, reign forever. Why would that bring hope to him? Why not? But you, Lord, who have mercy forever. But you, Lord, who have grace forever. You, Lord, who has love forever. Why would it bring hope to him to say, you, Lord, who reigns forever? Well, verse 16, he says, the crown has fallen from our heads. In other words, this is significant because Jerusalem no longer reigns. Their king from the lineage of David, he no longer reigns. The crown has fallen from our heads. But the crown has not fallen from God's head. And it never will. Why? Because he says, your throne endures from generation to generation. In verse 20, he says, our suffering has gone on for so long. It's been so intense. He says, God, why have you forgotten and forsaken us? Why? That's another question that a lot of people think that you can't ask of God. Never question God, brother or sister. And again, there's a... There's a, there's a good, genuine impulse in that. But the problem is, is that we see lots of instances where the right kind of questioning of God takes place. And if it's the right posture of heart, that we certainly can come to God with our whys. That's what he says here. Why do you forget us and forsake us so long? Verse 20. And then he pleads with the Lord. This is his main request. He said in verse 1, remember us. But now he says, restore us, turn us so that we can be turned or restored to you and renewed as of days of old. But notice verse 21. He doesn't just say restore us to our former lives. Did you notice what he says in verse 21? Restore us to you, O Lord. You know, there's a lot of people that want their previous life back. And they're looking to God to give it to them. But Jeremiah is saying, we just don't want it easy again, Lord. We realize the reason we're in this mess is because we turned away from you. Turn us back to you, Lord. Because you are the inheritance and the prize and the goodness that we need. So renew our days as of old. He's not talking about just the good old days and we had it so great. He's talking about the good old days of when we were in the presence of God. The good old days of when we were in close fellowship with God. Those are the good old days. Not the 50s or the 60s or the 20s or 1776 or 1611 or... 1200 B.C. or any of those, those aren't the good old days. You know what the good old days are? The good old days are when God's people are walking with Him. Those are the good old days. And that's what He's saying. We want those days again. Not just better days, but godlier days. Because every good thing flows 
from our relationship with the Lord. Everything good comes from Him. And what I want you to see as we bring this all to a landing today, and what I find so remarkable, the, way, the reason I framed this message the way that I framed it today, is what I find remarkable through all of this is that here you have a man and a people who have experienced enormous hurt that he has seen, that he's watched, that he's endured himself. We're talking about hurt beyond what most of us could, could comprehend, that the movies don't do justice to, that the history books can't quite describe. But through all that that he's seen, and I won't rehash it, he still possesses an enduring hope. Let me put it very simply. Come in real quick. This hope in Jeremiah just won't die. It won't die. Everything around him seems to say, your hope should die. With the children who've died of starvation, with the women who've been raped, with the men who've been hung, with the cities that have been destroyed, with the temple that's been stolen and all of it, and the people that have been shipped off to who knows where, your hope should die. Everything says that. Except God. And except God's word. It's remarkable. Everything around him seems to shout hopelessness. But through it all, you know what Jeremiah keeps doing? He's... he's he has this well-worn path back to God that he's just been walking day after day, getting back to God with this well-worn path of bringing his broken heart to the Lord where he expresses his pain, his frustration, his anger, his fears, his worries, his guilt, his disillusionment, all of it he's felt. And he just keeps bringing it back to God. And he does what I said from the very beginning this book is about. He grieves before God. He brings his grief and his laments and he lays them at the feet of God. And what he knows about God and about God's promises have planted a relentless hope in his heart that just can't be put to death. It just won't die. But it's also fascinating that this chapter doesn't end with Jeremiah riding off to the sunset with a pat on the head that it's all going to be okay. It ends in verse 22 with a, but thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. Some translations have it as a question. If you haven't yet utterly rejected us, and if you are not still angry with us, it doesn't end on a happy note. It seems to end with the silence of the Lord. There's no answer back, if you will. It kind of ends with Jeremiah still feeling this sense of rejection and underneath the anger of the Lord. One writer said the book is left 
opening out into the emptiness of God's unresponsiveness. You may know this, you may not know, but in a lot of synagogues, it's a common practice for Jewish congregations to when they read the book of Lamentations, the end of it in particular, or or even the book of Isaiah or Malachi, to where those books that end not with a positive note, but with a note of gloom at the end, to repeat the, the verse just prior to that as a way to close it. In other words, so as not to end on a negative or mournful note. Listen to what Philip Ryken said. He said this, Jeremiah knew that God could restore Jerusalem, but he wondered if he would. His prayer seems doubtful as well as hopeful, raising the unwelcome prospect that Jerusalem is beyond redemption. Has God utterly rejected His people? Is He angry beyond measure? The possibility of being beyond redemption is so alarming that many Jews refuse to end their reading of Lamentations with the book's final verse. To this day, whenever the book is read, it is custom in many synagogues to repeat verse 21 after reading verse 22. Philip Ryken says, that is not how Lamentations was written. The book ends the way God intended it to end. With the kind of unresolved anguish we have come to expect from the weeping prophet. Yet Lamentations was never intended to have the last word. The questions it raises were ones Jeremiah could not fully answer. And I close by giving you good news. That Lamentations 5.22 does not sound the final note in God's Word. It's not the final sentence in Scripture. In fact, as we continue reading through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ is God's resounding answer to Jeremiah's question and questions beyond Jeremiah that God has not utterly rejected us. In fact, Jesus said that God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The answer to Jeremiah's question doesn't come in the book of Lamentations. It comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says that God in former days spoke to us by the apostles and prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son. We began this message thinking about the metaphorical intersection of an old song, the corner of Heartbreak Ridge and New Hope Road. But I want to conclude by thinking of another song, a song that I think is actually better than that first song. The chorus goes like this. There is a place where hope remains in crowns of thorns and crimson stains and tears that fall on Jesus' feet where joy and sorrow meet. I want you to think about that intersection. That intersection where joy and sorrow meet.
an intersection of hurt and hope. You know what that song is describing? It's describing the cross of Jesus. And interestingly, the cross is an intersection. It's an intersection of two pieces of wood. Two pieces of wood that come together. Literally an intersection. Joining of two beams. And at the cross of Jesus, it's not just two pieces of wood that join together. The wrath and love of God intersect at the cross. The sin of the world and the perfect Lamb of God intersect. Immense judgment and greater grace intersect at the cross. It's where the deepest hurt any person has ever known intersected with the greatest love and everlasting hope for all who trust in the Savior who died and shed His blood on that cross where joy and sorrow meet. Let's pray. Father, thank you that on the path of enormous hurt, you often intersect it with our lives, a place of enduring hope. And it's through lament, it's through coming to you and mourning and coming to you with our pain, with our questions, with our hurt, with our guilt and shame, pouring out our souls to you that you bring us to that place of hurt and hope. That you bring us to the cross where Jesus died. Where he took on the hurt and shame, sorrow and agony of our sin. And where his grace and his love flows down to us. The place where joy and sorrow meets. Where the man of sorrows took ours, that we might have everlasting joy in him. So, Father, I pray for those who are facing a season of enormous hurt. They would find in you everlasting hope and enduring hope. I pray that, Lord, by your grace, that this hope inside of us because of Jesus just won't die. No matter what we face in this life, no matter what kind of pain and sorrow and loss and agony, that you have placed a hope in us that just won't die. And you keep bringing us back to you. You keep bringing us back to seeking your face and to your promises. Until that day, you call us home and forever wipe away all the hurts. Lord, we look forward to that day. If there's any here today or watching the service who don't know Christ, who've never come to that intersection of the cross to entrust their sins to Jesus and receive His grace at the cross, may it be today they would be saved. A place where joy and sorrow meets. We pray it in Jesus' name.